Psalm 109. Psalm 109. And the message this morning is, Lord, judge the enemy. Lord, judge the enemy. And in particular, uh, our enemies, Lord. Now, this is the last of what's called the imprecatory psalms. Now, the word imprecate, where uh, imprecatory comes from, it means utter curses, to utter curses. And some of the psalms, they were... You know, there were, there were prayers that were really, you know, um, in this case, there, there were curses that were uttered. And some think that this particular psalm is one of the most violent in the things that David prayed for. The psalm is credited to David. And we see that confirmed in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. But it must have been written before David took the throne. Because no king would be obligated. That is, no king would have to put up with this kind of treatment that he's praying about here from an officer, according to verse 8, in his court. Because the king had ultimate, uh, he was the ultimate authority. And, you know, you entered into his presence without permission, you could be killed. The man prayed about here was outwardly religious. Verse 7 says that, that, that at the end, let his prayer become sin. But in verses 3 and 5, it says that he hated David and that David was falsely accused by him in verses 1, 2, and 4. And he was cursed. David was cursed by this person, verses 17 through 19. David tried returning good for evil, but according to verses 4 through 5, it didn't work. And the man, according to verse 16, didn't show him any mercy. And this unknown adversary of David may have been King Saul himself. Whose, whose life David spared at least two times. Or it could have been one of Saul's important officers who wanted to please Saul, his master. Now, if we would have been in this situation with David, we might have prayed the way David did. Because there was terrible unfairness in the land. And only God could remove Saul and put the rightful king on the throne. David was one who didn't take matters into his own hands, but he put the matter into the hands of the Lord. The theme of this psalm is righteous anger against liars and slanderers. We can tell God our true feelings and desires. And maybe sometimes we might think, oh, you know, I, I have such ill will towards somebody and I have such anger and hatred towards somebody that I just, you know, God knows that. <laughs> he knows our, our inner feelings. He knows every thought, every word before it comes off of our tongue. So it's okay to express our feelings to the Lord, but we need to say, Lord, you know, help me with these feelings. Help me with these desires that are wrong and, and help me to get over them. The author of the psalm is David. Now, whether David wrote this psalm when he was persecuted by Saul or when his son Absalom rebelled against him or at some other time that he was in trouble, it's not for sure. We don't know. And whether this particular enemy that David is praying against was Saul or Doeg or Ahithophel or Hanan or somebody else not mentioned here, we don't know that either. But it's for sure that when David wrote this psalm, he was prophesying about Jesus Christ and his sufferings and his persecutors. The curse in verse 8 is applied to Judas. Acts 1.20 says, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And Peter applies this replacing of Judas. 
in the holy company of the apostles by choosing Matthias, who replaced Judas after he fell in transgression. You see, those that mishandle or abuse, mismanage what God has entrusted to them, will rightly so have their office taken away from them and given to those who will prove themselves to be faithful. First uh, Samuel twenty-eight seventeen and 18 says, For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, speaking to Saul, and he's given it to your neighbor David because you, Saul, did not obey the voice of the Lord. You see, if we don't obey the voice of the Lord and he's put us in an entrusted position, how can he go on using us? He will remove us from that position if, if, he can't, if he can't trust us. And the rest of David's prayers here against his enemies weren't about David expressing his anger, but of the spirit of prophecy. In verses 1 through 5, David makes his complaint to heaven about the cruelty and the shameful ungratefulness of his enemies. And with it, a prayer to God, Lord, do something. Don't just stay quiet. Speak up, do something. In verses 6 through 20, David prays against his enemies. Lord, do something. And he gives them over to destruction. In verses 21 through 29, David prays for himself. Lord, help me. And he prays that God would help and comfort him in his poor condition. In verses 30 through 31, David finishes with joy because he expected God to answer him. And when we read this psalm, we should comfort ourselves knowing that it gives the sure destruction of the enemies of Christ and his church and the sure salvation of all that trust in God and stay close to him. Like we learned this morning, abiding in him. When we step out of the shadow of Christ and out of his head of his will, you know, we lose that protection. Let's begin now with Psalm 109 with verses one through five. And David says, do not keep silent, O God of my praise. Because the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David starts off the psalm by asking God, Lord, don't keep silent anymore. You see, he wants God to do something to his enemies. Now, why does David want God to do something? Because the things that his enemies are saying is really bothering him. And there's really nothing that he can do personally. And many times there are things in our life that we can't do personally. We need God's intervention. We need to go to God. David is praying, Lord, these guys are talking about me. They're talking about me with a lying tongue and words of hatred. He says, Lord, my enemies are trying to ruin me by spreading lies about me and making false accusations about me that are being backed up by false witnesses. These vicious enemies surrounded David like a pack of wild dogs. They fought against him, he said, for no reason. He says, I love them, Lord. But they try to destroy me even while I'm praying for them. Look at how they return my love by returning evil for good and hatred for my love. 
Now, we've all heard the old saying, and I remember, you know, as parents, we, we often told our kids when something said, something was said, you know, mean to them at school and it hurt their feelings. We, you know, a lot of times we tell them, oh, sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt me. They're just words. Don't take them seriously. They really can't hurt you. But we know that you really can be hurt by people with their words, and we can hurt people with our words. I mean, all you have to do is look at social media today and how a lot of it is used for bullying and bad-mouthing people, lying about them, spreading false information about them. And, the, and, and you know what? People love <clears throat> to run with a lie. Oh, man, it, you know, it, it, people believe a lie way before they believe a truth. And they run with it. They don't back it up. They, or they don't, you know, research it. They, they just go with it. And people have been ruined and damaged by, by, by lies and slander. To attack people, to bully people, to slander people, ruining their reputations. Words have actually probably hurt people more and longer than acts of violence. You see, David knew this. And that's why he asked God to protect him from all the lies and all the rumors and all the slander and false accusations against him. That's why it's important for us, as the psalmist said in Psalm 143, verse 3. He said, I'm sorry, Psalm 141, verse 3. The psalmist said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. And he did. Notice the cage that your tongue is in and behind your teeth. But that little booger still gets out. You know? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I mean, he put that thing behind lips. He put that thing behind teeth. And it still gets out there. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Solomon said in Proverbs 18, 21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, how did David handle this verbal attack? And, and maybe some of you have experienced this, are experiencing this, and maybe down the road you'll experience it. And maybe because you're a Christian, people at work will lie about you and call you all kinds of names or, you know, something happens and, and they don't know the truth and they want to spread the, what they hear and what they know, what they heard. This is how, this is important for, for us. It's a lesson on how to deal with this stuff. We see how David handled this verbal attack. The key to David's attitude, notice, is the second part of verse 4. He said, I give myself to prayer. David says, I'm a man of prayer. He says, well, my enemies are talking about me while they're lying about me to other people, while they're trying to hurt me and bring me down, while they're trying to ruin me, I am speaking to God about them. So many times we're in such a hurry to rush through our prayers, our devotions. How much time do we really spend in our devotions every day? We could probably count the minutes on our fingers. But when you look at all the men and women of God that he used, you will find that they spent a lot of time in prayer. No man or woman that God ever used showed, ever showed a, uh, they, they, they showed a great spirit of prayer. They spent a lot of time in their prayer closet. 
If you haven't ever, if you've never written the book, uh, The Power of Prayer by E.M. Bounds, I would encourage you to pick it up. This is just a small paperback. But Paul prayed day and night. He said to pray without ceasing. Daniel prayed three times a day. In that book, it says that Charles Simeon prayed from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. Man, I'm still sleeping. Mr. Wesley prayed two hours every day, and he started at 4 a.m. Somebody said this about Mr. Wesley. He thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I have seen him come out of his closet with a serenity of face next to shining. John Fletcher sometimes prayed all night, always frequently and with great earnestness. His whole life was a life of prayer. He said, I wouldn't rise. They said that he wouldn't rise from his seat until again, lifting his heart to God. Luther said this, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, and this is, a, this is a, a great quote, he says, the devil gets the victory the rest of the day. I have so much business, he says, I cannot go without spending three hours daily in prayer. And he had a motto, he that has prayed well has studied well. Whitefield said this, whole days and weeks have I spent prostrate on the ground in silent or vocal prayer. He said, fall upon your knees and grow there is the language of another who knew whereof he affirmed. It's been said that no great work in literature or science was ever wrought by a man who did not love solitude. We make it a rule. Or we may make it a rule as an essential practice of of our religion. That no large growth in holiness was ever gained by anybody who did not take time to be often and long alone with God. David said here in verse 4, I give myself to prayer. And you've probably all heard this, this saying, you can talk about me all you please. I'll talk about you while I'm on my knees. And this is the safest and best way of responding to people's word of hatred and deceit and lies against you. You see, we want to defend ourselves. We want to try to say, no, that's not true. That's a lie. That's slander. You know what? I think many times we make it worse. We need to just back off and say, God, go get them. That's basically what David is saying here. Lord, you take care of it. The psalmist said in Psalm 38, 12 and 4, through 14, he said, Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. This was David. He said, But I, like a deaf man, do not hear and am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there is no response. He said, Those people lying about me and seeking my life and want to destroy me. He said, I act like a deaf man. I act like I can't hear. I act like a mute, like I can't speak. He says, There's no response for me. Lord, you take care of them. Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, 1, Do not fret because of evildoers. Don't worry about the evildoers. He says, Trust in the Lord when people create problems for you. We also read it in, again in Psalm 37, 5 through 6. The psalm said, commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He says, he will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and, and the, 
and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. What he's saying there is if we are misunderstood, God will clear us in time. Do you pray when people talk about you? Or do you respond to them and, and, and talk about them to other people? Are we men and women of prayer? Do we see everything that happens to us as being, part, as being God's sovereignty over our life? And because it is, you bring everything to God and you leave it there like Paul describes in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to be anxious for nothing and to pray for everything. We saw that example with David when, when Shimei was accusing him, slandering him, you murderer, you thief, you stole the kingdom from Absalom. David didn't steal the kingdom from Absalom. Absalom stole it from David. And when Shimei was slandering him, he said, you bloodthirsty rogue, you liar, you thief, all the things that he was accusing David of. You know, one of David's men wanted to go and say, David, I can't take this. Let me go take off his head. David said, leave him alone. He said, God's, God's called him to do this. And he says, maybe God will vindicate me. Just, just let God deal with it. And so David went about his business and let God handle it. Later on, Shimei was killed. Amos 3.6 says this. If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Don't worry yourself about the mysteries of God's will. 1 Kings 12.24, God said, this thing is from me. Deuteronomy 32.39, God says, look now, I myself am he. There is no God other than me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I'm the one who wounds and heals. No one delivers from my power. He says, I, I kill and I give life. I wound and I heal. I'm the one. Verses 6 through 20. David says, <clears throat> Set a wicked man over him. David is talking about this, about his adversary. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because he did not remember to show mercy but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continuing. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. David was saying, Lord, just get him. He was praying for all kinds of things to happen to this guy. 
And it seems like David here was talking about a specific individual. It is a prophetic reference to Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. Peter quoted verse 8 here in Acts 1.20. And I read it before. It said, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. The setting for verses 6 through 7 is a court of law. David says, Lord, judge the enemy. The word accuser is Hebrew for Satan. The, word who, the, the, the one who should be standing next to the defendant is a lawyer. His lawyer. It should be his lawyer. But Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So David is giving us a picture of his enemy. The one who is coming against David, his enemy is hauled into court by an evil man. And while he's in court, he finds out that this guy who's supposed to be his lawyer is an evil man in the picture of Satan who accuses him rather than defends him. And you see, that is Satan's purpose. His purpose is to lead people astray and to be an accuser and an enemy to you, God's people. The the man here has no defenders at all for the very reason that his actions cannot be defended. He's flat out guilty. A lot of sinful people think in their lives that the devil is somehow on their side and that he's with them to protect them and to help them to prosper. But they will find out in the end that he's actually their accuser. And then God answers David's prayer by pronouncing the judgment of the man who's been doing evil. Here in verses 6 through through 20, the judgments are specified. First of all, in verse 6, we see that the enemy comes under the influence of Satan. Secondly, he would be condemned in the judgment in verse 7. Third, his prayers to God would be of no value and counted as sin in verse 7. Fourth, his life would end early in verse 8. And fifth, somebody else would take his place, according to verse 8. And sixth, his children and his wife will suffer because of his death, because they would be fatherless, and she'd be a widow, according to verse 9. They would be forced to roam the streets like beggars, because their home falls into disrepair, because they can't keep it up, according to verse 10. Seventh, everything that the betrayer had worked for would be taken from him by creditors and strangers will take everything that he earned, according to verse 11. The eighth thing that would happen to uh, David's uh, adversary, no one would have compassion for the fatherless children of that betrayer, according to verse 12. Ninth, this betrayer's son would would die childless and eventually the family name would be removed from the record of citizens, according to verse 13. It says their name would be blotted out. Tenth, The punishments of the sins of his parents and ancestors, delayed and postponed in God's grace, would fall upon the betrayer. And the terrible sentence that's given here to to, to David's betrayer in verses 16 through 20 is deserved. He deserves it. Why? Because he was a hopeless evildoer who showed no sign of repentance or sorrow. In other words, this isn't the case of a person who simply sins like we all do. It's a person who sins against God and others knowingly and deliberately and joyfully and totally intends to keep on doing so. The person never thought of showing mercy to the people, I'm sorry, to the poor and the needy man and to the brokenhearted, according to verse 16. 
He loved to pronounce curses, bringing disaster on other people, and he didn't enjoy blessing anybody, verse 17 says. So as a result, he would receive no blessing. David's curses here suggest that the sin in question were unrepented sin and deserved to be punished by cutting off the memory of such a bunch of evildoers from the earth. His wickedness and his negative behavior would be like a garment to him. He'd, he'd wear his wickedness and his negative behavior. It'd be like, like, like clothing. He'd put it on like a garment. It would cover him. And it would be like some substances taken into the body, verse 18 says. David boldly said, he boldly announces the fate of all those who would speak against him. Those who make themselves his enemy. Their fate would be like that of the prayer, of the betrayer that he's praying against here in verses 6 through 20. The punishment that David asks for, it corresponds with their sins. It's equal to their sins. Verses 16 through 20 explain why the curses of verses 6 through 15 show that the evil person will get exactly what he gave to others. He cursed them. So you know what? He's going to be cursed. We saw that this morning. What, what, what people do to God, God will do to them. Here in verse 21, the tone totally changes. And the thought switches from evil person, from, from the evil person or persons in 6 through 20 to God. Notice verse 21. It said, but you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me. In this last section, David asks God to act on his behalf and to save him. And David has three reasons for asking God to do this. He says, first of all, God, for your name's sake. Notice in verse 21, deal with me for your name's sake. Lord, you know, save your reputation. The words deal with me for your name's sake means save me, Lord, so that you may be known as a God who's on the side of the righteous and against evildoers. And when we remember that the problem in this psalm is David's enemy's slander, Using their words to attack and destroy David's reputation, it's important that we notice that David is not so concerned about his own reputation as he is with God's reputation. Lord, do it for your name's sake. He wants God's name to be cleared more than anything else. Do we? Are we concerned about God's reputation? Because you see, the way we live makes a statement regarding God's reputation? Or do we care more really about ourselves? Another reason for David's prayer is his weak condition. Notice verse 22. He says, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. Now, don't all of us feel this way sometime? We're, we're, we're weak. And again, all of us at some time feels this way, and rightly so, because we're all weak creatures. Even at our best, and even the strongest of us are weak creatures. And David's weak condition here may possibly be speaking of his physical condition. And he's helpless in the flesh to resist the powerful adversaries. He can't handle them. 
And he's asking for God's help. And in asking for God's help, it's a powerful point to confess our weak and helpless condition. Lord, I can't do it. I am weak. I need you. Also, the righteous are despised. Look at verses 23 through 25. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. The reasons that God shouldn't continue helping him is this. Or I say the, the reasons God should continue helping him is this, that he faces imminent death. He says, my life, Lord, is, is fading like a shadow. You know, as it gets dark, you know, as it gets dark, a, a shadow fades away. He says that that dark time, that dark hour of death, it's upon me, Lord. And without your help, Lord, I'm helpless against these powerful adversaries. I'm I'm as helpless as a locust that's tossed around by the wind. And in his distress, David has no desire to eat. He's not hungry. And he's become an an object of, of reproach, of shame. He says, the enemies greet him with a gesture of contempt and disgust, which he says in verse 25, they just look at me and shake their heads. He's treated as though he was an object of God's anger. The third reason for David's prayer is his steadfast love. Look at verse 26 through 29. Help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it all. Let them curse but you bless when they arise and let, me, and, and let them be ashamed. He goes on to say, but let your servant rejoice. Let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. God is willing and he's able to help David's enemies, uh, uh, to help David. God is willing and he's able to help David and he's willing and able to help you and I. David's enemies may curse, but God who loves to bless his people will be sure to bless them. And their accusers will be put to shame. David asks again, Lord, deliver me. He asks for a deliverance that would be appropriate to show the mercy of God. He asks for a deliverance that would be so amazing that it would blow his enemies away that even his enemies would have to recognize and say, hey, man, That was the hand of God. That was the power of God. He prays that the evil plans of his his adversaries might fail. And even though they've they've cursed him with their words and, and, and the things that they did to him, you know, let God, Lord, over let you override their curses with blessing. Lord, over over override their curse upon me with your blessing. Let their moment of triumph be turned to their shame. And he prays that he himself might know the joy that comes with a victorious deliverance. In closing, verses 30 through 31, he says, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. These last two verses are a powerful and good ending to this psalm. David expects 
the deliverance that he's been asking for. And David promises that he's going to use his mouth to praise God for his deliverance. Now his accusers, they use their mouths to accuse and to curse David. But David is going to use his mouth to praise and to bless God because God has defended him and God has saved him. And David's prayer ends on a note of confidence that his enemies are going to be ashamed. And that their careful plans are going to be turned to confusion. David's waiting for that time to happen. David is waiting for that time like before when he uh, can continue to thank and praise God. He knows that his father is standing at his right hand to help him in court and against those who condemn him to death. Notice the difference. Notice the contrast between the last sentence and the words that started the the curses in verse 6. Verse 6 asks that an an accuser might stand at the right hand of the one who is doing evil to accuse him and to ensure his condemnation. But here, in the case of the righteous, God replaces the accuser who stands at the right hand of his own beloved people to defend and to save them. How do we become righteous when we're not? In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah's vision shows us how. Zechariah saw Joshua, Israel's high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, most likely representing the people before God in the temple. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, was there to accuse him. And since we're told later that Joshua was clothed in filthy clothes, representing his and the people's sins, Satan must have been pointing to these and declaring convincingly that Joshua was not fit to stand before God in this service. Joshua didn't say anything. Maybe it was because he didn't have anything to say, because he was sinful and he was unworthy. He's a picture of ourselves in our sin. But God spoke, spoke through his angel. And his words were a strong rebuke to Satan. Zechariah 3.2 3, said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And we are all brands plucked from the fire. Sticks that were pulled out of the fire. God saved us. And then Joshua's filthy clothes were taken from him and rich garments and a clean turban were put on him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And you know, when we come to Jesus Christ, our filthy garments are removed and the robe of righteousness of Christ is placed upon us. If you took this psalm and you put it right next to Zechariah's vision, you'd understand that in God's divine plans, you and I aren't righteous people being unjustly accused by the wicked, but we are, but rather the wicked, we are the wicked who are being rightly accused for our sins who need to be saved by God. And that's exactly what's been done for us by Jesus Christ. We are the righteous, or I should say, we are the wicked. And justly accused so. But because of Jesus Christ and what he has done, we are the righteous. Because by his death, Jesus has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And that's how we will be able to stand before a holy God in heaven. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm, Lord. And and God, help us to learn from it. Help us to apply it, God. Help us to be confident in the words of David, God. 
And Lord, to trust you, to be our lawyer, to be our advocate, to be our defense, God, against enemies that, God, we can't overcome, that we are too weak to stand against, Lord, that our own resources are too, too measly, too, too weak to do anything, Father. But Lord, when we turn over our problems to you, when we hand them over to you, when we commit them to you, Lord, which means to turn over to you, like the little boy did the fish and the loaves. They weren't enough to feed the multitude. But when he placed his meager resources into the hand of Christ, there was more than enough to feed the multitude. There were even leftovers. Lord, help us to learn to turn over our meager resources to you, God. To put them into your hands, Lord, that you may multiply. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, turn over your weaknesses and your lack of resources and and all the weakness of our human nature. Place it into the hands of God. And in God's hands, He will take those weaknesses and we will become strong in Him. As Paul said, again, in, in Christ, you know, we can do all things. We can do all things in Christ. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And, and if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.